You are listening to Sunday, March 15th, the sermon on Nehemiah Part 2, The Building of People. It starts with a hunger for God's Word. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. I'm going to be very honest with you. Today and uh, this week has been probably one of the most bizarre and um, almost stunning weeks of my life. I put that, I think, in the email on Friday. But this has been one of those things that I have not been able to wrap my head around. And in it all, there, there are so many different things going on inside of my head. And I don't know about you, maybe you've had the same conversations at your house uh, that I had at mine on whether or not to even come this morning and whether or not to be here. And, and there was this weird struggle inside of me because everything said to me, I had so many questions. And maybe you had so many questions as well. What should we do? How should we do it? When we went to one service, everybody said, are you sure you want to go to one service? Because it said, keep it under 100. I'm like, I don't think that's going to be a problem this morning. You know? And so you know, all of these things were kind of just floating around out there. How do you respond? And I don't know. Uh, Jerome, when did you come up with the songs this week? Was that on Tuesday? amazing that on Tuesday he came up with the songs this week and they picked good, good father. And this is the words you sang from verse two. I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers. Only you provide because you know just what we need before we even say a word. Did you pick that up when you sang that this morning? Did you hear that? Did you feel that? That, that God, he knows already. Even though we're going to end this service today in prayer, in a time of just praying for our country and praying for all the things that are going on, he knows already. Before we can even come up with a word, he knows. How do I respond? God knows how we're supposed to respond. The crazy part is, and the battle that I've had inside of me all week is, is the virus is very real, okay? The the, the virus is real, and and I don't want to downplay any of its effects. And on top of that, I absolutely, and this is probably the biggest fear I had, I don't want to put anybody's lives in danger. I don't want to have some sort of arrogant pride saying, this is how we're going to do it because this is the way we do it. This is what we always do on Sunday morning, so therefore this is the way it's going to be. And I don't want to put anybody's lives in danger. My family's not here today. And and the big reason for that is our our littlest one, Glory, who, who came home seven weeks ago, she uh, went to the cardiologist last week, and they said, hey, she needs to have heart surgery. She has to have a heart cath first, but then we're going to do some valve replacement, and there's going to be all these things that need to go on. She cannot get sick. That had nothing to do with coronavirus. She just can't have any interaction with the public. So uh, being the fact that my kids lick everything, um, we left them home so they didn't give anything to her as well. And so there's all of this that is out there. And so that's on the one hand. How do I make a decision for the church in all of that? But then on the other hand, there's some reality that how bad is this? How bad is it versus how bad is the media making it? And, and these are just, I'm just being honest with you, the questions that are in my head. Because honestly, the media isn't always truthful. And the media makes their money by you tuning in. And what are you going to tune into? Happy-go-lucky or fear? What's next? What have me on the edge of my seat? So how much is it of each? How real is it? How bad is it? All of these questions are going on. And as a leader of a church, do I say, hey, we're just going to nix everything? 
Or do we say, we're going to come together. You guys are old enough to make your own choices on whether or not you want to be here. Or do we say, let's really take the most precautions. I'm not sure if you, when you walked in, if you got the smell of Clorox. This building has seen more Clorox this week than ever. And everything's been wiped out at least 10 times. And so where are we in that? And how do I respond? And honestly, that's where I've been all week long. This battle inside of my head. And then you add the restrictions that came down from the government. And the reactions that came down from the government. And then even more so, the reactions and the overreactions of the people when the government said what it is. Did anybody go to Walmart yesterday? Okay, you guys are awesome and crazy all at the same time. I do have to laugh just a little bit on the inside when all these people are like, hey, we need to to self-contain. We need to quarantine ourselves. So we're going to go hang out at Walmart with 10,000 other people in touch carts and touch card processors and all of the things like that so we don't touch people, so we don't get the disease. It's almost mind-blowing that the thinking that is going on, and of course, I'll say something you've all heard 10,000 times this week. Why toilet paper? It just doesn't make sense. You know it. I know it. We shop at Sam's Club anyway because we have a large family, so we had a plenty of a stock. But I just went, what is going on? Why are people reacting in such a way? So all of this is coming in. And like I said, you probably had a lot of the same questions. So I began to look at pastors that I know, that I follow, that I trust, to look to their leadership and say, what are they doing? And maybe we'll make a decision kind of based off of that. We talk with our elders. We talk with our leadership here. But when I looked at these pastors, there were so many different responses. Some of them completely shut their churches down today. And some of it had to do because the government said, no groups over 100. Let's say we're, we're good on that. Uh, no, uh, my friend in North Carolina, it was no groups over 250, so their church had to shut down. But some went to live stream. And like I said, we're going to do that for next week. And for the next couple of weeks and kind of see how that goes. But I had one guy that I follow, and he actually said this. He got on, had a video, and he said, do you know anybody with the virus? Do you yourself have the virus? Do you know anybody who knows anybody who knows anybody who has a virus? The answer probably is no. So wash your hands, come to church. That was his video. And I went, wow, that's a little bit more bold than I'm going to be. That's not how we're going to approach this. So what do we do. And like I said, my head was just swirling all week long. It, it, it just, I couldn't grasp it. I actually had to turn off social media because it just got to that point where it's like, okay, I can't take any more of either the sarcastic memes or the we're all going to die. And, and those two together on my same feed, because that's the kind of people I guess I hang out with. It, it, was, it was crazy. What do you do? And even more so, I began to say, well, what do you talk about? Do we just stay the course with our gospel project and keep in Nehemiah? Do we talk about a message of fear not, kind of the same little basic outline I gave you on Friday in, in your email? Talk about a message of God's sovereignty that he's in control? And do we believe it? Do I give a message about the comfort of God or do I go as far as some people that I, I saw actually put their messages online already saying, y'all, Jesus is coming back, you better get ready. You know, that, that, that's the, where are we? And what do I talk about? And that's where it all has led to us right here, right now. One family service, 10 o'clock, Sunday morning, March 15th. What do we talk about? And as I read through Nehemiah, and I read through the second half of Nehemiah, and this rebuilding of the people. If you remember, one of the things we talked about with Nehemiah last week, it was 
The first half is rebuilding the walls, but the second half is about rebuilding and reviving the people. As I read through Nehemiah, some verses stood out that said, this actually, amazing coincidence, if you were here for Esther a couple weeks ago, fits to exactly what we want to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I would love for you to open up to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're really going to read the first 12 verses. And those 12 verses, I think you're going to see some things in there that stand up that really speak to, to what God wants to say to us today. And I hope even on a personal level, what he wants to say to you. Like I said, the first half of the book is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But this one is about rebuilding and restoring people. And so we're going to pick it up after the walls have been built, after the temple has been built, and everything has settled down. As a matter of fact, that's what it says here in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. So this was already in place. It was made for this purpose. So then there's some important guys that stood behind him, beside him on his right. And to his left were some other important guys, because I can't pronounce any of those names. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in full of all the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. And they knelt low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then a bunch of guys who were Levites explained the law to the people and they, as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving meaning so the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites were instructing the people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that was a verse that just really stood out to me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people by saying, be still, since today is holy, do not grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. That's a heavy passage as we walk into this, but I want to just kind of set the stage for what's going on here. You have a flash mob meeting at the water gate. Verse 1 says that everyone was gathered there. And at that time, when everyone is included, if you remember back to last week, we're talking about 50,000 people gathered together. They were present. I can't even imagine. That had to have been quite a scene, a little bit different than what we have going on here today. 50,000 people gathered. And what makes it even more incredible is I truly believe this was a picture of the church before the church was ever the church. This is, think about it. 
Nehemiah. He's at the helm. Ezra and his posse of all those names, they're preaching the word. Then you have all the Levites. They're discipling people and helping them understand and apply the word. And then all these people are together and they're worshiping and they're celebrating who God is. And they're together doing it. So, so Nehemiah has set this stage. They've built this platform. Ezra's up on this platform. And in the process of it all, he's prepared this way for them to read the word. For how long? Did you see in there? Daybreak until noon. Six hours. Guys, we moved to one service today because we're just going to have a six-hour service. How excited are you? Can I get an amen and an amen like they responded? Yeah, I didn't think so. That's not our natural response. Everybody just went, oh, geez, I do have to get to Costco today and wait in line with all those people. I'd rather do that. Our response to how that is, why in the world would they be okay with that? Standing for six hours for the most part, why would you even think about doing that to come together? And I wrote, that's the question I really answered today is why? Why would we want to respond in such a way? And the, the first reason I wrote down was is I truly believe they were hungry for the word. It had been so long. They'd been without the word. They were hungry for the word of God, and they were willing to stand for six hours, not just hearing the Bible, but hearing Leviticus preached. Have you ever gone through Leviticus before? Not something that is great to stand there and just soak in and be like, yes. But they were hungry for the word. And and in in the middle of it all, they knew the stories because they'd been passed down for generations. They knew the, the, the stories from their grandparents and why their grandparents had been exiled in the first place. They knew this stuff. They knew that their people, and including themselves, had disobeyed the laws of God, even Leviticus. And they were broken. And they saw their brokenness. They saw the brokenness in the stories. They saw the brokenness of the walls that they just rebuilt. They saw the brokenness of their own lives and that they needed the word of God. They needed the word of God. And and I think we can see that clearly here today, can't we? I actually heard a quote this week that said this, A crisis is a great opportunity to learn more about oneself. What have we learned about ourselves this week? What have we learned about the society that we live in this week? I told Christy, even before I'd heard that quote, I said, I feel like we're all sponges. And we've all soaked in so much, and we do a great job of keeping the outside of that sponge looking good. But when we are squeezed, everything that we've taken in, everything that's on the inside of us comes out. What has come out this last week? And the sad reality is, it's greed and selfishness that come to the top. Greed and selfishness. Why else would you panic by? I'll be very honest with you. Like I said, we, we shop at Sam's Club because we have to. Not because that's the biggest thing of toilet paper I can find. It's because we need that much toilet paper. And, and we have it in our garage. I probably shouldn't say that out loud. We're not live streaming, so Christy is safe right now. But the, the thing is, is we have that in our garage. But I went out the other day, and I was standing there, and I'm going, okay. Do I have enough? And the only reason why I ask that question is because everybody else has taken it. So I'm like, should I at least get in on that bandwagon and try and fight some people? I'm pretty big. I can take a few people out. I, I can get it. I mean, when I went to Albertsons yesterday, they actually had an armed security guard. And I went, why in the... 
That is where we're at. That is what this crisis is showing in people. And I felt it inside of me. And when I think of greed and I think of selfishness, I think of the original sin from Adam and Eve, the brokenness that comes with it, even with me. I really thought about the brokenness in my own life as I reacted towards people and their reactions. Because people who react like me, I was okay with. People who weren't reacting like me, you can bet what I was thinking because you were thinking the exact same thing. Those blank, 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 can't say it all the time from the pulpit, but you know exactly what I'm thinking. They're just not smart. That's our immediate thought. But that's the brokenness in me instead of seeing people for who they are, sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus calls them, that are distraught and distracted and, and taken away. But I see them as just a bunch of morons. And, and that brokenness is there, and I think that's why we need to understand that people need the word. People need the word of God. They need to hunger for the word of God. People right now are hungering for news feeds. People right now are hungering for Facebook. They're hungering for Instagram. They're hungering for video. Whatever they can get, TikTok, whatever it might be, they're trying to grab these things and hold on to them in some way, shape, or form so they can feel in just a slight bit of control. I mean, I read this week, why do people panic buy that goes to bulk buy that goes to all that? It gives people control. That's it. They have some small ounce of control in the midst of crazy. I got a question, though. If Bibles were as scarce as toilet paper right now, would people be freaking out? If you couldn't get the word, would we be as hungry for it as we are if somebody said, government control, shut down on all social media so we can control what goes into your house and what doesn't? Would we be upset about that versus the word? And I ask that question honestly. See, there's a need for God. And I truly believe there's a hunger for God. And you might say, well, not in today's generation. Have you seen today's generation? Have you seen the way it works? And, and I'll tell you from the bottom of my heart, I truly believe we will see an increase in the desire for God very soon. And I believe we're seeing that generation that is growing hungry for God because they're growing hungry for truth. They are tired of the lies that are always spun. They just want the truth. You know what the truth is? It's Jesus. He said it himself. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no man will come through the Father except through me. When he says that, people are going to want it. And guess what? We have it. But what are we doing with it? Are we hoarding it like toilet paper? Or are we willing to say, I've got it. Here it is. Here's what you're looking for. Here's that thing for such a time as this. Remember that whole Esther thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Why are we here? Why are we in the midst of all this? Why are you being challenged even today? Why did you come for such a time as this? The people of Jerusalem, they were hungry for the word because it had been so long they'd been starved without it. The second reason I think they were willing to gather with 50,000 other people to hear God's word for six hours is they had a high view of God's word. They had a high view of God's word. And I say that for this because really I believe that when we look at talking about God's word and talking about truth, we kind of have to define it. Some people, really I think there's three broad views of, of Scripture. The, the first one is really a low view. It's more or less saying there are no absolutes, there are no truth, you can take what you want out of it, and you can spin how you want it. 
Whatever you want Scripture to say, I can find a verse to make it fit you. Now, that doesn't mean all the other Scripture isn't going to go against that, but I can twist Scripture to make it be what I want it to be. And I think you can do the same thing, but that's a low view of Scripture. Then you have a mid-view of Scripture, and that's, that's this idea that it's kind of beside me. And it being beside me, it's, it's one where I can make it really justify how I feel. I can take it, maybe you sat in a Bible study before and the question goes around, well, what did you think about that scripture? And everybody thought something different, but they're all right. And it kind of bases itself from opinion. It kind of bases itself from circumstances. What's truth to you might not be truth to me, but we're okay with that. That's kind of where I think the church has a tendency to sit. But then there's the right view of Scripture, and I hate to say that because that makes me sound a little bit arrogant, but this is the right view of Scripture, and that's the fact that it is above us. God's Word is absolute truth. God's Word has authority over our lives as Christians, and we need to submit to it. And you might think, well, that's pretty narrow-minded. But here's the thing. How many of you have lived in Albuquerque for more than at least a couple of months? Everybody? Pretty much in here? Let me ask you a real quick question. Albuquerque area, sorry, for those of you who are like, I live in Rio Rancho, Albuquerque's a dump. You're right, it is. But here's, here's the thing. Where are the mountains? East. If you want to be oriented in Albuquerque, you know that if you're driving towards the mountains, you're driving east. If you're driving away from the mountains, you're driving west. Some of you, I'm breaking brand new news to you, so I, I, I'm glad for that. But, you know, you can kind of get an idea where you're at, which way you're going because of the mountains. Have you ever gone someplace that is flat and has no mountains and you can't even figure out where the sun's at in the sky? And you're like, where am I? I think it's called West Texas, by the way. But if you stop and think about it, you have to try and orient yourself If you don't, you're going to make wrong turns, you're going to make twists, you're going to be all over the place until you get something even as simple as a GPS or use the maps on your phones. And the reality we see here is without those things, you're going to be all over the place. Well, this word is our GPS. If you want to go like cheesy kind of Southern Baptist style, God's positioning system, if you want to call it that way. It is where we are. And it points out where we need to head. I promise I'm coughing, not because of anything other than the fact my throat's dry, okay? I promise. Here's the thing. God's word, it anchors us. It anchors us where we need to be. But if we take a low view of it or a mid view, that kind of gets wiped out. God's word is a roadmap. And more than just even a roadmap, it's actually a roadmap with the destination in mind, the eternal perspective. I think people miss that, especially today. They're focused on right now. They miss the eternal perspective. Can I ask you a question? As I mentioned the hunger for God, would you say that you have a hunger for God? Would you say you have a hunger for Scripture? Would you say you want to be under its authority? Because this is where the people of Jerusalem are finding themselves as they're at this water gate. But then the third thing we see as we look at Nehemiah 8 is that they could all see that eternal perspective. They could see through the lens of the gospel. They could see through the lens of the gospel. One thing I hear a lot about the Bible, about why people don't read it, 
is because they think it's boring. They, they, they think Scripture is boring or they can't figure out or they can't understand or they can't really grasp what it means. But here's what I think we do. We have a tendency to look at Scripture in the wrong way. I think people think it's boring because they fail to read it through the lens of the gospel. They fail to read it through the lens of the gospel. This gospel project we've been in, I've told you a handful of times, that the reason why we cover one book so quickly is because the whole project for three years, either the New Testament points back at Jesus or the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and the gospels talk about Jesus, it's all about who? Jesus. And when we can read Scripture that way, it changes who we are. This is not just some historical book, but this is all about God's redemptive plan to rescue sinful, broken people. Remember I said brokenness is it? We are saved by Jesus. All the people that are mentioned, the Noahs, the Abrahams, the Moseses, the Davids, the Pauls, they all point to Jesus. It's not about them. It's all about Him. And if we can grasp that, it'll change the way we see things. If we can see that the Bible is all about Jesus, that every story, that every chapter, that every verse all points to Jesus, it changes the way we see it. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it in Luke, 9, uh, Luke chapter 24. He said, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in my death, burial, and resurrection. Even he saw scripture that pointed to him. And if we don't read it in that way, you know what happens? We begin to read it in such a way that we put ourselves at the center instead of Jesus at the center. And we begin to take verses the way we want to see them. It's actually called moralism. It's like we could have taken Nehemiah and broken it down to a four-week series all about leadership and how God can help us in it. I've done that before. I've actually preached an entire thing on the leadership of Nehemiah. But when it's about us and that God can help that kind of little tie-in right there, we're missing it. We're missing what it is. We miss the whole idea of Scripture that it is God's story, not our story. We just get to be a part of it. It's really interesting. A couple weeks ago, I was standing, I was talking to the pastor over at Grace Church. His name's Aaron. And uh, we were talking a little bit, and he had a kid. I say kid, I apologize. A senior in high school um, that, uh, that goes to La Cueva. And she came up to him, and she wanted to get baptized. And in the process of talking about wanting to get baptized, he said, well, tell me kind of the story. And she said, well, it's really interesting. I'm in a Bible as literature class over at La Cueva. She said, instead of taking English, they let us take this last one. And so this is what I've done. And he's like, okay, well, tell me a little bit about it. He goes, okay. She's like, this is crazy, okay? You're, you're not going to believe this. God created the earth. And she's telling a pastor friend of mine this, okay? And he's like, okay, all right, I'm listening. And she's like, and then he created two people. And these two people had everything they needed. Can you believe this? And he's like, uh-huh, I got gotcha. you. Keep going. And like, but then they made a poor choice, and they sinned, and all this stuff happened. And then all the consequences afterwards to the point where she's like, right now, we, were, we read that God sent his son. And he's like, okay. And she said, but then they killed him for doing nothing. And it's just like, that's the last class we talked about. And he's like, okay, let me explain the whole reason why. The whole story, everything you shared is up to the point of 
Jesus came not just to live and not just to die, but to die for you and to die for me and defeat death in the process. When we read Scripture in the full view of that, it gives us hope. But it also humbles us. It humbles us to see who we are because we are sinners. It humbles us to see that we need to submit to that word. But it also gives us hope because in that word, God has restored the brokenness of our lives and it through comforting us with a great Savior. How awesome is that? I love what John Piper said when he talks about how he sees the Bible. He said these words, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them, I can't see what is lovely. We can see with the Bible what is lovely. And what is lovely is the fact that a God, our God, the God of all creation, sent his son. He loved us enough to send his son so we could be redeemed. How awesome is that? But without the word, we can't see it. Without the word of God, we can't see it. Without the gospel that is there, we miss the richness of who God is, of who his son is, and why he did it. That's when it becomes boring, you realize that? Because we've moved from knowing the story to just academics. And even for those who are, who are involved in academics and like apologetics, it still can get boring if you forget what it's all about. When we have the wisdom of God that leads to salvation, we have the knowledge of God that leads us to fear him, it changes everything. And that's what scripture gives us. And the thing is that that led to a response with the people in Nehemiah chapter 8, a response of worship. The word leads to worship. So Ezra gets up, he reads the word to all the people, and this is what it says in verse 6. He blesses the Lord, the great God. You know what the purpose of us being here today is? It's not for information. It's about praising God for who he is. We are here to worship God. And as we read the scripture, that opens our minds and expands our view of who he is so we can even worship him all the more. We were created to be worshipers. All of us worship something. The problem is, because of sin, going back to our story of, of our kid at La Cueva, because of that fallenness, the, the making the bad choices, she said, that what we worship is ourselves. It's all about us. It's all about us making ourselves big and making God small. But Scripture, that GPS, it, it reorients us. It reorients us to understand that we are very small, but God is very great. He is worthy of all of our worship, and he is worthy of all of our lives. And that's how we should respond in it all, that all of our preaching should magnify God. All of our lives, all of our teaching, all of our music should magnify God. I mean, look how the people respond in verse 6. Amen and amen, exclamation point. I know we're in a Southern Baptist congregation here, so I'm just going to say that softly, because otherwise we'll think we're Pentecostal and start dancing around and stuff like that. But look at the response that is here. I mean, I know there's about one and a half of you in here that would like to respond with an amen. Because every once in a while, I'll hear it. I'll get that little amen. The church I grew up in, we knew the guy that was the amen guy. I grew up in a very conservative Baptist church, and one guy, amen, every time you knew it was coming, and I knew who it was. It was my friend's grandpa, and he was embarrassed by his grandpa saying that. But you know what they're saying when they're saying amen? It's true. 
I'm in complete agreement with that, and I want to be in my life. Amen. That, that scripture you're reading, that, that's what I want. I want to impact my lives. And then it says they did something really crazy. They lifted their hands. Okay, not just lifted their hands, but lifted their hands during the preaching. I'll be like, what? What, do you have a question? You know, that would be my response because it would just be weird. But this, the, they're saying this. It's so funny because so many people will come to me and say, hey, Matt, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious how we should respond in worship. Uh, should we do this or should we not? Should we not do this? And the thing I want to ask back is, because I think it's the wrong question, God is worthy of our passionate response. How do you want to passionately respond to it? And, and each of us in here have been in a different church or grown up in a different way, and some of you are like, no way, I will sit on my hands before I stand up and raise them. And others are like, you give me freedom? I'm going all out. I'm going to do this. But see, the thing is, is that God wants our worship and how we do it, how we come to him. Because we were broken and because we've been saved, how awesome is that that we should respond and be led to worship by the word? The greatest response I see, though, in this passage is the next thing. It's actually repentance. Repentance, and that's a, that's a bad word in a church. But we don't want to hear that word. But look at verse 9. It says this. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Ezra's reading the law, and the people are moved to tears. Why? Why are they? Well, he's reading the first five books. Genesis is in the first five books. What happens in Genesis? Adam and Eve. We already talked about it. And they see their brokenness, that they rebelled against God. And they go, you know what? We've rebelled. We've rebelled. And then they see a guy like Noah and how God wiped out the earth because of that rebellion, because of the wickedness. And they say, you know what? Not that we only rebel, but we are also wicked People, we need to be rescued from destruction, just like Noah. And then he reads about Exodus. In Exodus, the people are rescued from exile. And they say, we need to be rescued from exile. Because we are broken and we are wicked. And then they get to Leviticus, where it's talking about all these laws. And as they're reading all these laws, they're not keeping any of them. They go, we are terrible people. And the response is, weeping. They responded in such a way. But here's the thing. This is a gospel moment. This is a gospel moment. As the word is read, the people get to see how great and how holy God is. And then they also get to see how small and how really bad they are. And none of us want to hear the words that we are bad people. But without Jesus Christ and without the blood that has washed us and the Holy Spirit that is changing our hearts, guess what? We are inherently bad people. The heart is deceptively wicked, it says. And we're going to chase after our own things until we see. And when we see it, we have two choices. One is repentance or two is pride. There's no response in between. Either be repentant or be prideful. I can do this on my own. I can store up all these things and I can be in control or I can't. And only God is great. And only God has saved me. And then the great thing is, as Ezra says, and the Levites say, and Nehemiah says, verses 9 and 10, you don't have to weep anymore. You know why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Your hope rests in God, your Redeemer, not in yourself. 
not in your efforts. Your rescue and redemption rests in the strong arm of God. Nehemiah is giving hope to the people. He's saying, stop crying about it. And the same is true today. Our hope and our salvation rests in the strength of God, not in the control that we think we have or the control we think we need, not in our character, but in his character. And guess what? We can rejoice in that because you and I could never do it on our own. We can rejoice in the fact that God did it for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Can I hear an amen and an amen right there? There you go. Because I'm in agreement with that. I believe that is true. And when we get there, the great thing is, he says, you need to celebrate. As a matter of fact, that's the next response. Enjoy, and not just enjoy, but enjoy and share. Share it with people. Nehemiah tells him to go eat the fat, drink the sweets, get it, go and enjoy it. And whoever doesn't have it, take it to them. Include others in the joy that you're experiencing. Can we say that that's something that Christ has also called us to do? That he's called us to share that? Jesus has bridged the gap of my brokenness and God's perfection that he wants. I can celebrate that, and we should celebrate that. So Nehemiah sends people out on a mission to go and not just receive blessing, but to share blessing. And finally, the last thing we see in Nehemiah is that that word leads to obedience. I'm going to be real quick with it here, but here's what it says. The last handful of verses that we didn't read today, they continue to read the word. And as they continue to read the word, they come to the realization that they have neglected celebrating what was called the Festival of the Booths. And in it, sometimes we need to be reminded, and that's what this festival was all about, the harvest of God's provision that came down because of being rescued in Egypt and the journey through the desert and all the things that go with it. And basically the point is, is they read the word and then they do what it says. They obeyed the word. And in fact, what they do in verse 17, it says there was great rejoicing. They got excited about doing it. Can I tell you that if we hunger for the word and if we take in that word and we allow it to change us and we put it into perspective that we have a high view of it versus this side view or low view, It's going to change how we respond. And we're going to have an ever-growing appetite for who God is and what he's doing. And reading the Bible won't be boring. I jokingly said this week, uh, if you got the the text, uh, Michael over here gave me a thing on Friday morning men's Bible study. Here's some verses for peace and here's some verses for for this. And all I do is put the verse references and below what I said, you have time this week to read them because there's no sports and there's no school and there's no other activities. So now everybody... Literally, Christy goes, did you know that people are asking on Facebook what they should do with all their time? That's a sad reality. People shouldn't have to go, well, what am I supposed to do with my kids now? Talk to them? You know, maybe you have three weeks that you've been granted by the government to have interaction with your children. That's a huge thing. But people were kind of in this, what am I supposed to do? Well, how about we spend time in the Word? How about we stay off of social media for a short time and say, instead, I'm going to hunger for this instead. What if we took time and invested in our kids or just invest in someone? You don't have to touch them. Just talk to them. Talking about who Jesus is. This, there's panic out there. And the reason why is because people don't know. They fear the unknown. We know 
There is no unknown. We know that God is in control, and we know that there is an eternal plan that he has in place. There is no fear in that. We have an eternal perspective, being in the word. Funny thing is, is I was reading yesterday uh, a thing from Paul David Tripp, and he was talking about devotions. And Paul David Tripp is a pastor, but he says this, your devotional life should serve as one big gospel reminder. It should remind you of the horrible disaster of sin. It should remind you of Jesus who stood in your place. It should remind you of the righteousness that is his gift. It should remind you of the transforming power of the grace you and I couldn't have earned. It should remind you of your future destiny that is guaranteed to all of God's blood-purchased children. When we get in the Word, it should remind us of that. It all points to Jesus. Guys, I'm praying that today you are challenged I'm praying that, that God brought the right message because I'm telling you it was yesterday that I was putting this together because everything else was consumed with something that really I had no control over. I'm praying that Nehemiah has challenged us to be hungry for the word, dive further into it, and let it change our lives. That's what I'm praying for today. 